We are, it's only by the blood of Christ who cleanses us from sin, who purifies us, purifies us that we can be here. And we thank you for that this morning. Thank you for his sacrifice. I pray that as we open your word that it would be used by your Holy Spirit to convict us, to convince us of our sinfulness, and to show us the forgiveness and the restoration that can be had in Christ. Forgive us, Lord, for the times that we seek to come into your presence with impurity in our hearts. And we pray that this morning we might be a holy people here in your presence this morning as we open the word together. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks, folks. You can have a seat. As we were singing that last song before I, I came up just now, I was realizing as we sang those words about who God is, his holiness and his worthiness of worship, realizing that the concept of morality has taken many devastating blows over the last couple of decades, especially here in the United States and around the world. It was 3,500 years ago that God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. Probably many of you are familiar with a lot of them. Maybe you can't rattle them off, but if I did, you would recognize them at least. You may know that commandment number seven is, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Commandment number ten is, Thou shalt not covet. And if you read the follow-up verse that Moses writes there, to the command, thou shalt not covet. He says, one of the things you shall not covet is your neighbor's wife. And the Old Testament defines adultery as sexual intimacy with anyone who is not your spouse. That includes extramarital affairs. It includes premarital intimacy. In the New Testament, Paul and Peter and James use the word sexual immorality, which is an even broader term and encompasses all kinds of sinfulness in that area of life. But we know that God calls us, his people, to purity. Now, one of the things that makes purity even more challenging for us today is the state of our culture. A series of surveys have been done and studies in recent years and tell us that 50% of the adults in the United States no longer believe that marriage matters. No longer believes it is important. It also tells us, and this was a number that was astounding to me, but 85% of adults in our country believe that living together or sleeping together before marriage is acceptable. 40% of children in our country are born out of wedlock today. Some studies have been done that tell us that social media doesn't help either. Those who have no social media are supposedly or, or tell surveyors that they are happier with their marriages. Those who are involved in heavy social media use are 32% more likely to leave their spouse. In Genesis 2 verse 24, 
God said this to Adam and Eve, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Now, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, we've been making our way through the book of Genesis. And last week, Pastor Tim started us into the life of Joseph. And this morning and next Sunday, we're going to go further into the life of Joseph. And as we do that this morning, we're going to see some important lessons for us in the area of purity. One of the most disturbing things, uh, out of all the disturbing things that are happening in our world, in our country right now, is this attack on purity and biblical morality, the rise of intimacy outside of marriage, the rise of perverse lifestyles, the rise of pornography. If you are paying attention, and I hope you are, that attack is zeroing in on our children and our families. We have companies like Disney that has long been a friend of families and children and produced content that many of us grew up with and raised our families on, is now promoting homosexuality and transgenderism, and not only promoting it, but producing content involving those lifestyles. You've probably heard that public schools and public libraries are hosting drag queen shows and drag queen story time for children. You may or may not have heard, I just heard this week, a couple of churches, in name at least, hosting these same kinds of things. There is a concerted effort in our country today to destroy your family's innocence, and you need to be aware of it, and you need to take steps to counteract it. Of course, most importantly, this kind of behavior and these lifestyles are contrary to the clear teaching of Scripture and to God's plan for us. And this is what I want us to be thinking about here this morning together. That in order to serve and honor God, we must remain pure. If we're going to be the people God wants us to be, if we're going to do the things that God wants us to do, we must be pure. We must be separate from these things that are happening around us in our world. Well, let's dive into Genesis and see what's happening in Joseph's life. Last week, Tim got us started there and gave us some of the details of Joseph's life. Joseph was the second to the youngest son of Israel. You know who Israel was, if you've been with us. He was Jacob, remember? And after he wrestled with God, God gave him a new name of Israel. And Joseph was the second to the youngest son. And it says in Genesis 39, in verse 1, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. 
So if you've, again, been with us over the last few weeks, we've been reading a lot of scripture, and there's a lot of story here in Genesis. I hope, I know some of you have been reading through Genesis and trying to get everything that we're not covering. In 13 weeks, we're not going to cover 50 chapters of Genesis, as is obvious, I hope, to you. But we're going to try to cover this ground here this morning, and what we're seeing is that Joseph got sold into slavery by his brothers. They were jealous of him, and they threw him in a pit, and they were going to kill him, and then they said, hey, let's not kill him, let's make a little money. So they sold him to the Ishmaelite slave traders that were passing through. The Ishmaelite slave traders bumped into Potiphar, who was an Egyptian soldier and a commander over a great number of Pharaoh's army, and he said, hey, I'll take that kid right here. He'd be a good slave for my house. So he bought Joseph, brought him home, put him in there. Joseph started working, and what do we see here? We see that God was with Joseph. Even in this place, far from home, God was with Joseph, and he started serving there, and everything he touched worked, went well. Things got better. The house started running smoother. And so Potiphar said, hmm, I think I'll give this guy some more responsibility. It says here, if you look in the verse, if you were watching as I was reading it, it says that, that God gave him success. And so Joseph rose through the ranks in Potiphar's house, and pretty soon Potiphar said, here, just take all of it. Just do everything. Hey, everybody, do what Joseph says. That's what was happening. Now, if you remember from last week, Joseph was still a teenager here. He was only 17 when he got thrown into that pit. So now he might be 18, 19 at the most. And God has blessed him. And God is watching over him. And now he's running the whole household of this very important man. We don't know exactly what he had. But it says that he was in charge of everything in house and field. So Potiphar had some land apparently, maybe some crops, maybe some animals. Joseph was in charge of all of it. Okay, have you got the picture? Here we go. Verse 6. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as he spoke, as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. So Joseph is 18 or 19 years old, and he's a good-looking young guy. I mean, you see here it says he was handsome in form and appearance. Literally, that means he was handsome to look at and he was in good shape. Okay? He was a good-looking guy. He probably had a six-pack. <laughs> I don't know if you knew this, but everybody has a six-pack. I have a six-pack. It's in here, under there, somewhere, <laughs> under the stuff. But Joseph was young, and he was strong, and he was good-looking. And Potiphar was off doing all his thing every day, and Joseph was running the house, and she started watching him, and she started thinking, I think I'd like to spend a little time with this guy. And it says she cast her eyes on him. By the way, my friends, as we look at what happens here and the lessons that God has for us, this is the way this kind of sin usually begins with our eyes. 
And that happened with her. And she propositioned Joseph and he refused. It's interesting, the word refused there literally means he absolutely refused. He made no bones about the fact that he had nothing for her. And he wanted nothing to do with her. You notice here that Joseph didn't want to betray the trust that Potiphar put in him. He said, you're his wife. I can't do that. You're his wife. Joseph understood, even at that age, he understood the importance and the sanctity and the holiness and the purity of marriage as God desired it. But I want you to also see that he knew that this would be a sin against God. Again, even at this age, at this young point in Joseph's life, he knew that God had something in store for him, and he knew that this was wrong. It would be a sin against God. But day after day, it says, there was continual temptation. She continued to talk to him. But it says there that he would not listen to her, to lie with her, to sleep with her, or even to be near her. Look at verse 11. But one day... He went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house. She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Now we could look at this, and, and we see Joseph's initial reaction. She says, Joseph, come on. And he said, no, no I can't do that. You're my master's wife, and, and it would be a sin against God. And he said, no, and we say, congratulations, Joseph, that is great. But it was day after day after day she kept hounding him. She kept after him. She kept talking to him. And then one day came when they were alone in the house. I want you to notice here the continual, persistent nature of temptation. We are not tempted simply once. As you well know, if you're honest with yourself and you have any self-awareness at all, we are not tempted only once, but continually there is a persistence to the nature of temptation. But I want you to also see there was a danger here of being alone with someone that is not your spouse. We need to be very careful. She knew what was going on. She was probably waiting for this opportunity. And she ramped up her advances. Not only was she speaking to him, but she grabbed a hold of him. And he got out of there. <laughs> Left his coat in her hands and ran. Look at verse 13. As soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home and she told him the same story saying, the Hebrew servant who you brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. I want you to notice that she immediately went from wanting him to wanting to destroy him. And that's how sin works. From pleasure to destruction, sometimes within moments. Verse 19, as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, 
his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Now, we don't know what the dynamic was between Potiphar and his wife. We do know that in this culture, it was a very sexually charged culture, much like our own. There was a lot of immorality. Now, maybe there was some kind of understanding, who knows, between Potiphar and his wife that she could do what she wanted to do when he wasn't there. There were a lot of other men in the household, as you can see, and she had probably plied her wares on others of them. We don't know anything about that, but whatever the dynamic was between them, he could not be seen to be humiliated by a Hebrew slave. And she makes a point of that here in her accusation. This Hebrew slave that you brought in, your servant, your guy, look what he's doing here. He's humiliating us. And Potiphar would have none of it. So it says he put him into prison. What I want you to notice there in that verse is it says, he put him into the prison. It was a specific prison. The one where the king's prisoners were confined. And that's where he was. That tells us two very important things. Number one, it tells us that Potiphar was an extremely important man because the, the people that offended him went to the same prison as the people that offended the king. But it also tells us that God orchestrated even this. For Joseph to be placed in this prison with those who had offended the king. And next week we're going to see that God is going to use even Joseph being thrown into prison to accomplish his will and to further his plan and his purpose. But what we need to talk about for a few moments this morning is what God is teaching us here. This is what happened to Joseph. Joseph resisted the temptation. And I know as we look at it, we see, well, what was his reward? His reward was that he was thrown into prison. But what do we need to learn from Joseph and his temptations to immorality and impurity? I want to read to you a couple of verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 18 says this. Paul writes, Flee sexual immorality. For every other person, or every other sin, excuse me, every other sin a person commits outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now, if you notice there that the word flee is used, the same word is in Genesis chapter 39. Get out of there. If you are tempted in this way, Paul says, you need to get out of there. Don't think about it. Don't debate about it. Don't rationalize it. Run. We do this with sin. We do this with temptation. We debate about it. We think about it. We wonder. We rationalize. Paul says, you can't do that. You got to flee. You got to get out of there. Get out of that situation. Here's something that I want you to bear in mind, and if you don't remember anything else that I say this morning, then please remember this. Temptation is not a challenge to be beaten. It's a trap to be avoided. Okay? You know the difference? 
It's not a challenge to be beaten. It's not like a Rubik's Cube for you to sit there and see if you can solve. It's not Sudoku. I see if I can get this. It's not a beat the clock kind of situation where I got to see if I can overcome this. It's a trap to be avoided. If you were walking through the woods and you saw a big bear trap lying there, would you dance around it? Would you play hopscotch with that sitting in the middle just to see if you could beat it? No, of course not. That's ridiculous. Why? Because you know if you land in it, there's pain there. And if you see a trap, you run. You go the other way. You change direction. You make a new plan. And that's what Paul is telling us. Temptation is not a challenge to be beaten. We're not trying to see how strong you are. It's a trap to be avoided. The verb tense that Paul uses here when he uses the word flee means to flee and keep on fleeing until the danger is past. Now as we read that verse 18, we notice here too that Paul says that the immoral person sins against his own body. What does that mean? Well, Paul doesn't really elaborate for us here in these verses or any of the ones that follow in direct uh, regard to that, but we need to think about it this way. Impurity begins in our hearts. It's an internal sin. In fact, I don't know if you're familiar with the passage in Matthew where Jesus talks about adultery and he says this, you know that Moses has said you shall not commit adultery. And he was referring back to the Ten Commandments. The God had given his people. What did Jesus say? But I'm telling you, if you even lust after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery. What is Jesus saying? He's saying this is a sin that begins in the heart. It's an internal sin. It begins in our hearts and it affects us deeply. One of the great lies of Satan in regard to impure, immoral behavior is that it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't affect anything. It's no big deal. Tell me, have you heard that before in our culture over the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years? Those of you who are old enough, it doesn't matter. What does it matter? It's no big deal. We're just having fun. We're not hurting anybody. Everybody here is in agreement that this is what we're doing. So it's fine. And that is the lie of Satan. Battling this kind of temptation and sin is a huge deal because it affects everything else that we're doing. Remember before we started looking into God's word this morning, what were we singing about God? What were we saying about him? Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Worthy, worthy is your name. How do you think that God feels when we come into his holy presence with impurity in our hearts? Is that acceptable? No, it's not. It affects everything else that we should be doing. And it's entirely possible that there are married couples and families here this morning that are struggling with this, wrestling with this kind of temptation. It's all around us. You go to work and there's somebody at work that will listen to you when your husband or wife doesn't seem to listen or care. Or there's something that you see on your computer or it gets texted or emailed to you on your phone 
And we have to battle that temptation. It's easy for single adults to think the way that I can overcome my loneliness is by having someone who shows me that they care about me. And you find out that it causes more problems. In our families, in our children, in our teenagers, we need to be so careful because you're playing with fire. Fire that leaves scars that will affect the rest of your life. Paul goes on to say in verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, who you have from God? You are not your own. Paul said, don't you understand? Don't you know this? Maybe you don't know this here this morning, but I want you to understand this is a very important concept that Paul is giving us. He is telling us that place is no longer sacred. Why is place no longer sacred? Because you are God's temple. If you were to look in your Bibles and you were to go over to John chapter 4, you would see Jesus having a conversation with a Samaritan woman. And as they were talking back and forth, she asked him a question. She said, sir, tell me, where should we worship? My people say that we worship God here, but your people say that we have to go over here. And do you know what Jesus said? He said, place is no longer sacred. How do we worship God? We worship God in spirit and in truth. What does that mean? It means that you are the sanctuary of God. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, Paul says. We could think about these things that we're talking about today and all these kinds of impurity and we could say, oh, that's horrible. But can you imagine how disgusting it would be to commit an act of sin like that in a church? Oh, that would be even worse. Well, guess what, my friends? Every act of sin that we commit is committed in God's sanctuary because we are his temple. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. Paul says, you are not your own. Talk about a phrase that would make people's heads explode today. You are not your own. If I see one more sign and hear one more person chanting, my body, my choice, I'm going to lose it. Not if you're a Christ follower. Not if you're serious about what Christ did for you on the cross in shedding his blood to cleanse your heart from sin and to buy you back. So that you no longer have to be a slave to sin. No, you're not your own. It's not your body, your choice anymore. It's his. You're not your own. Every Christ follower is commanded to set aside independence and self. And the problem with all of this crap, that's the technical word for everything that's happening out there. Crap. Yes, I said it here in church, remember? Place is not, oh, place is not sacred. <laughs> the problem with all of that, my friends, do you know what it is? It's all self. It's all selfish. It's all me, me, me. This is about me and my fulfillment and what I want and what makes me feel good or what makes me feel special. 
And it's all outside of God's design. God says, you are not your own. We commit these kinds of sins. We're not only damaging ourselves, we're damaging the other person as well. Sexual sin is selfish sin. Verse 20, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. What is the price? The price is the blood of Jesus Christ. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, you remember we talked about the fact that without Christ, we're slaves to sin. But we're now his and we need to live like it. In order to serve and honor God, you must remain pure. Listen to these verses from Ephesians chapter 5. Paul says it this way here. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Listen to this verse. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. These are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who it is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Satan is stalking you. That's what Peter says. 1 Peter 5, you know that verse. He's stalking you, looking for an opening to tempt you, to lay a trap, to fan the flame of sinfulness that lies in the heart of every one of us. Joseph knew that, he, that God had a plan for his life and he knew he could not fulfill that plan if he did not remain pure. You were bought with a price. God purchased you for a reason. Christ shed his blood for you for a reason, for a purpose, and you must bear that in mind. When you face temptation, think about this. God purchased me for a reason. He has a plan for my life. The way of wisdom is to consider the cost of sin. If we are his people, if we desire his best, we need to always count the cost. Because sin, especially this kind of sin, will keep you from God's blessing and it will keep you from his best for you. Purity in this vile, evil, twisted, perverted world is rare and it's difficult. But it's possible. It's possible because of the blood of Christ that cleanses us from sin. We must consider ourselves, remember a couple of weeks ago, dead to sin and alive to God. This morning we're celebrating communion. And do you know what? The Father welcomes you with open arms. Communion is about understanding the sacrifice that Christ has made. And I know that if you've been sitting here and you've been thinking about the things that I've talk, been talking about, if you've been dialed in and you're examining your own heart, you might be looking at yourself and saying, what if I'm not clean? What if I've done these things? What if that has been my life at some point or even at this moment? Well, that's why we come 
to the throne of grace. That's why John says, if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. And you know what else it says? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Christ. This morning in the cup holder, in the seat where you're sitting, there's a little packet with a little cracker, a little cup of juice. And if you're a Christ follower here this morning, then those are symbols of Christ's body that was broken for you. They're symbols of his blood that was shed for you. If you're not a Christ follower, if you don't know the Lord is your Savior, then it's just a cracker and a little juice. It's just a snack. But for those of us who love Christ, it's a reminder of what he did for us. And in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, if you're going to come to the table, if you're going to come to the communion table, if you're going to give thanks for what Christ has done for you, you better do it with a pure heart. So we're going to pause. The band is going to sing a song for us as we contemplate. And if you're here this morning and you need to reestablish your purity before God, take this moment and ask for his forgiveness. Ask him to cleanse and to restore you. And he will do that and celebrate with us what Christ has done. Father, we are so thankful this morning for the sacrifice of Christ which cleanses our hearts from sin. There is not one person, regardless of their self-awareness or lack of it, there is not one person that is here that is worthy of this gift, but you give it to us by grace. We try sometimes futilely to maintain our righteousness, to maintain our purity, but we recognize that we can only do it through your power. We are asking here this morning, Lord, that you would cleanse hearts, that you would restore people, that you would, that you would free people from the slavery of this garbage that is going on in our world around us, all of the things that, that are pelting our minds and our hearts, seeking to keep us from what you have for us. Father, we know you want your best for each one of us. And I pray this morning that we would come to you with pure hearts. Cleanse us, we pray, as we give thanks for the sacrifice that Christ has made for us. In his name we pray. Amen. My challenge this morning is don't toy with sin, especially in this area of your life. Protect your purity. Protect your family. Take some steps if you need to. Some of you may need to go home and throw some DVDs and Blu-rays in the trash. Or maybe cut your cable or get rid of a streaming service or whatever. Do whatever it takes. Because if you don't, if you allow yourself to get wrapped up, you'll miss what God has for you. Father, thank you so much for the power of the blood of Christ, which cleanses and restores. Thank you so much for the truth of the word of God that, that cuts through our selfishness, that cuts through our sinfulness and lays bare 
the problem of sin. I pray that we would be careful in this world, that we would walk wisely, that we would flee when we need to. We pray for your strength in order to do that. I pray that this church would be a lighthouse, that it would be a beacon in this community. We are not perfect. Surely we do not profess that. But we do desire your grace and mercy so that we might be your people. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for coming, folks. I hope you have a great week.